For those of y'all who don't know me, I was pastor here between 1986 and 1993. And uh, since 1999, uh, Libby and I have been serving at First Baptist in Mount Pleasant. And coming June of this year, our plan is to retire. And between now and June, I'm sort of missing about every other Sunday to let our new pastor, that's going to be my successor, uh, have the full services, both services, and, uh, and me not even be around. Let folks realize that he's the pastor now. He's going to be in charge. And so in talking with Kenny Van Nuys, I've agreed to fill in some here during those weeks that I'm available and uh, so delightful to be with you and to share in these times. If you have your Bibles today, I want you to open them with me to the book of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Now, I was going to read uh, the first three chapters, but I'm not going to do that. There are three chapters in title and whole, but uh, I think that would be a little bit too much. So we're going to restrict our reading this morning to 2 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 10. 2 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 10. Now, if you'll hold your finger there, I want to give you just a little bit of background. You may know the background pretty well of this text, but again, you may not. So let me give you just a little bit of a historical background before we get into the scripture reading itself. You may know that the nation of Israel went along pretty well as a nation under three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. But at the death of Solomon, his son could not hold the kingdom together. And so the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, more or less. There was the northern kingdom of ten tribes, approximately, whose capital city was in Samaria. And there was the southern kingdom of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, whose capital city was in Jerusalem. Southern kingdom Judah, northern kingdom Israel. And for quite some time, these two kingdoms existed side by side. In the northern kingdom, there was hardly any king that was any good at all from a spiritual standpoint. In fact, there was not one that really honored God and sought to please God. Every king of the nation of Israel was a wicked king, spiritually speaking. They may have done some other things that were good in providing for the people and uh, military power or even economic might, but spiritually speaking, it was no-go. In the southern kingdom, however, there were some good kings and some bad kings. There were some kings who sought to honor God, who followed God's ways to do God's will. And there were some kings who sort of went along to get along and turned out to do some very evil things. And so this went back and forth over the years until both kingdoms fell. Now, during the time of history we're talking about here, in the southern kingdom, there was a man named Asa. His father had been king before him. When his father died, he came onto the throne. We read about that in chapter 14 of two chronicles. In the northern kingdom, there was a man named Basha, who sat on the throne in Samaria. And there was enmity between Basha and Asa. Now for some time, Asa ruled and was a godly king. He did good things. For instance, he tried to destroy all the idol worship that was going on in Judah. He tore down some of the temples that were made to false gods and foreign gods. He tried to get the people to worship the Lord God and to obey the commandments of God. In fact, you might even say there was a genuine spiritual revival under King Asa. He led the people to make a covenant with God to renew their commitment to follow God's ways. Now, after he had been in power for some time, there came a threat 
And the threat was from an army in the south that had one million soldiers, according to the Bible. And so Asa, having an army of about 580,000 soldiers, went up against this much larger army, and his only hope was that God would intervene. And so we read in chapter 14 that he prayed and asked God, God, you see the problem we're having. These, these one million soldiers and 300 chariots are coming against us, and you are our only hope, our only source of help. They went into battle against the much larger force, and God gave them victory. And it was a wonderful victory. And everybody was happy, and everybody uh, received much loot and plunder from the battle. And then for some years following that, they continued to do well and had no enemies, and the, the nation prospered. But in the 35th year of the rule of King Asa, a new threat arose, and in this case, he took a little bit different tack as to how to deal with it. Now, that's where our scripture reading comes in today. So if you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I read it out loud in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 1 to 10. In the 36th year of Asa, Israel's king, Basha, went to war against Judah. He built Ramah in order to keep anyone from leaving or coming to King Asa of Judah. So Asa brought out the silver and gold from the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace and sent it to Aram's king, Ben-Hadad, who lived in Damascus, saying, There's a treaty between me and you, between my father and your father. Look, I've sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Israel's king Basha so that he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies to the cities of Israel. They attacked Aijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard about it, he quit building Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and the timbers Basha had built it with. Then he built Geba and Mizpah with them. At that time, the seer, or preacher, Hanani, came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, Because you depended on the king of Aram and have not depended on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from you. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a vast army with many chariots and horsemen? When you depended on the Lord, he handed them over to you. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. You have been foolish in this matter. Therefore, you will have wars from now on. Asa was enraged with the seer and put him in prison because of his anger over this. And Asa mistreated some of the people at that time. Amen. This is God's holy word. Pray with me if you will. Our fathers, we come here today to this worship time. We've already worshipped you. We've given you honor and praise through songs and prayers and through the reading of your word. And we pray now that you'll help us to continue to hear your voice and to commune with you through the preaching of this word. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher today, giving us each the message we need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 9 of the scripture has been one of my favorite verses for a long, long time. 
It says basically that God is currently searching throughout the earth. He is currently looking and searching to see people whose hearts are perfect toward him so he can make himself strong on their behalf. I love the way the King James Bible puts it. It says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, seeking to make himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. When God looks in your heart today, does he see a perfect heart? That's the question. That's the question. Let's back it up a minute, though, and let's ask this question. When you came to church today and you thought about coming to church today, perhaps even before you got on the campus this morning, what did you really want to get out of church today? What did you really want to get? When all this service is done and you're on your way home and you're thinking about the service, what would really make you say, well, I sure am glad I was at church today. Now, it may be you're glad to see some people you hadn't seen for a while. I'm certainly glad to see some of you that I haven't seen in a while. It may be you're really happy because the sun will come out someday and be warm again. That's, that's good. But what would really be a pleasing thing to you that happens in a worship service from time to time? I would suggest that for many of us, we would like to know that we have had a communion with God in a worship service where we sense God's nearness, His presence, where we heard the voice of the Holy Spirit somehow speak a message to us. Somehow we, we had this special event take place that only happens when Christians gather to worship. Would that be fair? Is that kind of what we're looking for when we go to church? I mean, it's just more than seeing people. It's more than just having a good time. It's more than just singing the songs that we know and like. There is that sense of a divine communication that worship can bring to us. And that's what we're after when we come here. Okay, now turn it around. What is God after? What does God want? And that's the question in verse 9 of our text. God is seeking those people whose hearts are fully devoted to him so that he can make himself strong on their behalf. Now, that was the case of King Asa before we read what we saw in chapter 16. In chapters 14 and 15 of 2 Chronicles, we see that he truly devoted himself to God. For instance, it says in verses 2 through 5 in chapter 14, Asa did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord as God. He removed the foreign altars and the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars and uh, put down the Asherah poles. He commanded the people of Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey the law and his commands, and also removed the pagan shrines as well as the incense altars from every one of Judah's towns. So Asa's kingdom enjoyed a period of peace. In fact, you may say, you know, that, that's my life before uh, when I first came to Christ. That's just the way I lived. I wanted to put away everything in my life that didn't please God. I wanted to get rid of all the foreign influences, the devil's influences in my life. I wanted to live fully devoted to God. And that's exactly how Asa was in his life. Something else we see about Asa's life before, we see it in chapter 14 as well. When trouble came, God was his first resource. And you know, some people today, God is not their first resource. It's their last resort. It's kind of like, you know, when somebody comes to the pastor and they say, well, pastor, uh, the doctors have done all they can do for grandma. 
They've treated her, they've operated on her, they've given her medication, they've done everything they can do, and now I guess it's time to call on God and ask him to do something. You ever treat God that way? Some people do. God is an afterthought. He isn't a forethought. He, he is something we try and we pray to, someone we pray to, only after we've tried everything else we possibly can, but not Asa. In fact, when we see in the scripture text in chapter 14, beginning at verse 9, it says, Once an Ethiopian named Zerah attacked Judah with an army of one million men and 300 chariots. They advanced to the town of Marishah, and so Asa deployed his armies for battle. Then Asa cried out to the Lord, his God, O Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we trust in you alone. It is in your name that we have come against this vast horde, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let mere men prevail against you. Isn't that a great way to live? Oh, we don't distrust doctors. We don't distrust medical practices. But we have God as our first resource and not our last resort. And that was Asa. Look at another thing about Asa. It says that he sought God's will and God's ways in all things. In chapter 15, we read about Asa in verse 9. It says, Then Asa called together all the people of Judah and Benjamin, along with the people of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, who had settled among them, for many from Israel had moved to Judah during Asa's reign, when they saw that God was with him. The people gathered at Jerusalem in late spring during the 15th year of Asa's reign. On that day, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 cattle, 7,000 sheep, and goats from the plunder they had taken in the battle. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. They agreed that anyone who refused to seek the Lord, the God of Israel, would be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They shouted out their oath of loyalty to the Lord with trumpets blaring and ram's horns sounding. All in Judah were happy about this covenant. For they had entered into it with all their heart. They earnestly sought after God, and they found him. And the Lord gave them rest from their enemies on every side. Here was a man who not only personally went to the Lord and trusted the Lord, but he led his people to trust in God. Then one more thing we see about him in chapter 15 and verse 18. It says, he brought into the temple of God the silver and gold and the various items that he and his father had dedicated. He was generous with his tithes and his offerings. You know, sometimes a person may talk a big talk about their Christianity. They may lead others to believe that, yes, they're fully committed to God. They're uh, willing to serve God. But you know one of the real tests of a person's Christian faith is what they do with their money. You know, your money can be the biggest indicator of your spiritual depth more than anything else. You see, we can put on a good show up front. We can pretend to be the most pious person in the neighborhood. But when really that comes down to it, are we committed fully or are we just committed in those ways that are easy, in those ways that are acceptable? But when we get serious about serving the Lord, we have to ask the question, God, how much of my stuff do you really want? You know, in the Old Testament, a tithe was the standard of giving. The Old Testament man who wanted to be faithful to God was to give God 10% of the increase. If he had 100 sheep and this springtime his animals had 50 new lambs, he was supposed to give 10% of those 50 to God. That would be five of them. 
If a man had crops and he grew 100 bushels of wheat, 10 of those bushels were to belong to God. Now, what about we Christians? Well, you know, tithing is not a law for Christians to obey. That was for the Jewish people. I think it's a good principle we can follow. But you know how much God wants for the Christian? 100%. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean we write a check for 100% of everything we have and give it to the Lord's work. But what it does mean is we ought to treat every bit of our money, every bit of our, tie, our possessions as though it was God's and use it as God would direct and not just for our selfish purposes. You can't stop at 10%. If you're a, a tither and you do give 10%, that's wonderful, but that's just the beginning of where God wants us to give generously, and that was Asa. What I'm saying is this guy presents us a picture of a fully committed person whose heart was fully devoted to God. But what we see in chapter 16 is something different. What we see in chapter 16 is a man whose heart obviously is not fully committed to the Lord because when trouble comes, he doesn't turn to God. In fact, the Bible told us in verses 1 through 3 of the text we just read, in the 36th year of Asa's reign, King Basha invaded Judah. He began building this fortified city, Ramah. And the Bible says the purpose of him building the fortified city was so he could control who went in and out of Judah. Therefore, he could control the prosperity of the country and therefore control King Asa. And so when King Asa heard about this, normally you think, well, this man is godly. This man is pious. He knows the Lord. Why doesn't he go to God in prayer? Why doesn't he go to the prophets? Why doesn't he go to the priest? Why doesn't he say to the people, let's have a prayer vigil and ask God to deliver us from our northern cousins who are trying to control us. But instead, he goes to his pocketbook and he goes to the treasury of the temple and he starts counting out the money and he says, you know what? I think we can afford to handle this problem. In essence, he was saying, we don't need God. We don't need to pray. We don't need to search the scriptures. We got money. Let's just buy off our enemy. And that's what he did. And so he sent the letters with money to King Ben-Hadad, who was one of the perennial enemies of all Israel, who was reigning in Samaria, I'm sorry, in Syria, and in the capital city of Samaria, Syria, Damascus, and said, hey, your dad and my dad were good buddies. Why don't we become good buddies? And by the way, here's a lot of silver and gold. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to break your relationship with the Israelites and come and fight against the Israelites so they will stop harassing me. And that's what happened. Ben-Hadad took the money and began to fight against some of the stronger cities of Israel. And therefore, King Basha had to leave Ramah alone. He had to leave building Ramah and go to defend himself against his former friend because of the money that Asa had sent. And so here we find a man who turns from one way of looking to God as his sole defender to now he's looking at God as maybe he's just a good old buddy. And he's there if I ever need him, but if I don't need him, I'm not going to call on him, I'm not going to bother him. He thought he could solve his own problems instead of turning to God. You know, there are a lot of people like that today. A lot of people who think they can handle their problems themselves. And then the third thing we see about 
Asa. He was willing to live with sin. Now that doesn't sound right, does it? Because we saw in chapter 15, one of those passages I read, where he tore down the idol temples. He tore down the shrines. He tore down the Asherah poles. All these were implements used in idol worship. But it says very clearly in verse 16, in the first part of verse 17, it says he deposed his grandmother, who was herself an idol worshiper. And then down in verse 17 of chapter 15, it says, although the pagan shrines were not removed from Israel, he did not tear down all the pagan worship centers. Now here's a lesson. This is not part of the sermon. I'm throwing this in for free. I'm not charging you for this one, all right? Sometimes Christians are content to live with a little sin. Think about that just a minute. We think, well, you know, this little sin, I know it's not right. It's, it's not the best thing in the world, but, but nobody knows about it. After all, I'm just human. I got to have a little fun. Maybe that's what we think. And, and I know I'm saved. I mean, I know I trusted Christ. I know I, I was baptized in the church. I really believe that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. But what's a little sin, you know? And because it seemed to be such a little sin, it seemed to be so harmless, Asa allowed some of the pagan shrines to continue to operate. And it was part of his downfall. When trouble came, he didn't have that deep relationship with God to depend on because he had moved away from God's fellowship. Now let's talk about that for just a minute. Fellowship versus relationship. When you become a Christian, when you become born again, you begin a relationship with God the Father. And he becomes your true spiritual father and you become his true spiritual child. And that relationship will never again be severed. That's what we Baptists call the security of the believer. Some of you have heard it said like this, once saved, always saved. And that's, that's a way to put it. However, as a born-again person in a relationship with the Lord, it's possible to live out of fellowship within that relationship. Let's just give an illustration of a parent and a child. Let's just assume dad says to his son, son, I know school is out now for the season, summertime is here, and I know you want to go to the beach with your friends, but before you go to the beach today, I want you to mow the grass, and I want you to trim all the sidewalks, and I want you to trim the hedges out in front of the house. And while I'm at work, that's what I want you to do. When you finish that, you can go to the beach. So the son thinks about it, and he sort of lays around a little bit longer when the dad's gone to work, and he yawns a little bit and decides to get out of bed and drink his coffee, and he thinks to himself, you know, you know, dad is a good man, but he just doesn't understand. Your child ever say that to you? Mom, dad, you just don't understand. And his friends come around, they say, come on, let's go to the beach, it's, it's getting hotter and hotter, we've got to get out there and get a good spot, and da 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 so the son decides that instead of cutting the grass and trimming the hedges and doing all the kind of trim work around, he's going to go to the beach with his friends. And so late in the afternoon, when he and his friends have had all the sun they can stand and probably a little bit more, he comes dragging home. And guess what he sees when he comes to the house first thing? His dad's car. It's, oh, what's dad going to say now? And dad may have a lot to say. Or he may have silent treatment. 
But the point is this. Even though the boy is still the son of the dad, their fellowship has been interrupted, wouldn't you say? Or maybe it's like a husband and wife. Maybe it was kind of like the time when my wife and I had our first knockdown drag-out fight. I mean, you couldn't understand Libby being in a fight with anybody, could you? But we had this first knockdown drag-out fight, and here's what I was going to do. I was determined that I was not going to say the first word. I was going to give her the silent treatment. And I was going to wait till she spoke before I said anything. And she did. First thing she said to me, come out from under that bed and fight like a man. <laughs> but, but you can imagine, we were still committed to each other. We were still in love with each other. We were still married to each other. But something happens to the fellowship when things don't go well in our day-to-day living. So we can say Asa truly was a God follower, but his fellowship with God wasn't what it should be. You may be living there today. You may be able to say, Pastor, I know, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm saved. But I'm not living in fellowship with God. I'm not living the way I should be living. There's something in my life that's not really what it ought to be. And so though you are saved, though you're a Christian, member of the church, and you know without any doubt you're going to heaven when you die, how's your fellowship with God? How's your fellowship on an ongoing day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis with our Heavenly Father? So we saw Asa in the first part of his reign for many years, a good, godly, devoted follower of God. Something happened in later years. He somehow turned away from God and began to do his own thing. And so we need to ask the question, if what God is looking for is a perfect heart, if what God is looking for is a fully devoted heart, then what would that look like? How can I have a heart that's fully devoted to God? Being human, I know I'm going to sin. It's not though as though I can just automatically stop sinning forever. You know, we want to, we try to, we can't. So how do I live with a fully devoted heart? Let me give you three things. And if you write any notes down today, let me encourage you to write down these three things. And maybe these are some things God can use in your life today. Number one, number one, to have a fully devoted heart for God, you need to get rid of sin and live a life of repentance and confession. We don't always understand those two words. Repentance is when I realize I'm going in a wrong direction, and I turn around and go in the right direction. Repentance is having a change of mind, a change of heart about things. Confession is when I agree with God about my sin. When I've done something wrong, and God brings conviction on me and makes me realize that this was sin, this was wrong, I say, yes, God, I agree, it was sin. I don't make excuses. I don't blame it on somebody else. I don't try to say, well, I'm, I'm just a weak Christian. I just can't. No, no, you're responsible. And so when I'm willing to face my sin realistically and honestly from a Christian standpoint of repentance, turning around from it and confessing it before God, I can have a heart that's fully devoted to him. It's when I don't do that. It's when I'm content to live with sin. It's when I realize there are some things in my life that are sinful, but I don't want to get rid of them. That's the person whose heart is not fully devoted because you're content to live with sin. And God's rule is not compatible with sin in your life. 
And you say, well, how can I get rid of my sins? Well, you start by confessing it to the Lord. Then you continue by repenting, turning around from it, and trying to go in a new direction. That's where we need Christian friends to pray for us and with us. That's where we need the church to encourage us. That's where we need a Sunday school class, a small group where we can uh, openly confide our weak areas and get prayer and help. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Bring every problem, every decision, every issue to the Lord for his direction. Don't presume that you know what's right for your life. But realize that God alone knows what's right and what's wrong. And so instead of making decisions and then asking God to direct your life and and to bless your decisions, why don't you ask God to show you what decisions to make in the first place? Now, I know we men are really bad about this. Do like this, men, if you agree. We're bad about this. Just take my word for it, guys. You are. Here's how it works. You know, we want a new car or a new truck. And we think, well, I can afford the payments, but I don't know if my wife will like it or not. And we sure don't want to pray about it and ask God what he would have us to do about it. And so we think like this, I'll go ahead and trade cars, and my wife will like it so much, she'll be okay with it. And then if I discover later that it's against God's will, he'll forgive me. But if it's against his will up front, I won't be able to get it and won't be able to have any fun. And that's where we get this old adage, it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. We want to do what we want to do. But you see, the person whose heart is fully devoted to God is more interested in making decisions and choices that are pleasing to God rather than coming back later and seeking God's forgiveness and try to restore the trust that's been lost. You see the difference. And it's for women as well. And so we need to have the attitude that we bring our issues before the Lord before we make the choices, before we make the decisions. We bring our lives before God to live them under his leadership and not under our leadership. And to say, God, bless this mess that I've created. I used to laugh and still do at times about our committees. I've seen this happen not only at the local church, but also in pastor's groups. I've seen it happen at the state convention, even at the national convention. We'll get a group of people together, a group of Baptists together to talk about and make some kind of decision. And then after the meeting has gone on and is about to break up, says, oh, we better pray before we go. And we say, God, bless our decisions. You see, we need to pray before we go into the meeting rather than after we have finished the meeting. We need to pray before the decision and during the time we're trying to make the best choices for life so that God can honor it. The third thing is this. Live with your hands open before God. And the example of this is Jesus himself in Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. You remember those tender moments that Jesus had with his disciples. They'd already had what we call the Last Supper. Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. They walked together out across the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives, to that place where Jesus had often gone with his disciples. It was a quiet place. It was perhaps like a park. And there was a place where they could spend the night in prayer, a place where they could talk, uh, a place where they could uh, meet, where they wouldn't be hindered. And so Jesus told ten of his disciples, well, actually nine of his disciples, to wait and 
Two others went with him on into the garden. And Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He himself went a little further into the garden, perhaps kneeling as the movies show him under an olive tree. And there he prays the same prayer three different times. His prayer is, Father, if there's any way possible to remove this cup of suffering from me, please do it. But if not, your will be done. I think this prayer shows Jesus' humanity. He was fully human as well. His humanity, Jesus said, I would rather not have to suffer. I would rather not have to go to the cross and die this horrible, agonizing death. But Father, if that's the only way for your will to be done, I'll do it. Here's what he was doing. He was taking his hands like this and he was opening them up before God. And he was saying, God, I'm putting everything right here in my hands. And I want you to take everything you want. Oh, and by the way, if there's anything you want to give me, I'll receive it as well. It's like the second point I tried to make, and that is bringing all your decisions before God. But this includes not just your decisions, but also your possessions. In fact, if you stretch out your hand sometimes in prayer, you may say, Lord, I, I put everything in my hands to you. I give my family to you, my job to you, my reputation, the plans that I have, my money in the bank, everything. Lord, I just put it in my hands and say, Lord, I give it to you and you take what you want. And Father, if there's something new you want to give to me, some new responsibility, some new burden for a task, some blessing, Lord, I'm opening my hands to receive it from you. So that I'm constantly having an open-handed attitude toward God. Are your hands open to God today? You see, we're quick to grab at things. Well, I can't do that because i got to do this for me. You know? And many times, honestly, we say, my will be done. God, not thy will be done. And the day will come when God will say the same thing back to us. You wanted your will? Well, here it is. And for all eternity, we live with only what our will can do and not what God's will can do. This morning, as you look at Asa, you think, well, here was a man who had a lesson early in life to give everything to God, and then later in life, he kind of took it back. That's the way it can be with Christians. I've seen many, many people come to know Christ, and they have such a zeal to serve the Lord and to live for the Lord. And after they've been saved for a while, it kind of wears thin. They haven't nurtured their spiritual life. They haven't kept their spiritual growth up with other areas of their life. And they come to the place where they should be mature spiritually, but they're not. They should be really icons of Asa's early life where they're fully committed to God's plans, but instead they've gotten into a groove of the same thing over and over again, but they don't want to get out of that groove. It's called comfortability. I learned that lesson long ago. You know, if you took everybody that slept in church and lined them up end to end, they'd be more comfortable, right? And if all you're looking for is comfort, you're going to be thin spiritually, about that thick spiritually. But if you're looking to be fully devoted to God's will and God's ways in your life, it may require a lot more than just coming to church. It may require a lot more than just a 10% gift of your assets. It will require full devotion to God, getting rid of sin, bringing all your issues to God beforehand, and living with open hands before the Lord. I want to ask you to bow with me for a moment in prayer.
I'm going to ask our musicians if you would just uh, play over uh, what I'm going to share at this time for a moment, if you will. Just let us be reminded that God is with us now, and we prayed for him to come and to speak to us this morning, and now I believe he's probably worked in some of your hearts and lives already. Is it possible that you have sin in your life that you have never confessed before God? You don't want to give it up because it gives you some measure of pleasure. And you need to say to God this morning, Lord, I have sinned against you. I regret it. I wish I hadn't done it. But I've sinned. Father, please forgive me and heal me. Is it possible that there are issues in your life that you never brought before the Lord? You've gone about making decisions and living your life on your own. You've never brought God into that process. And there's some things you need to bring before him. Say, Father, show me what you'd have me to do in these areas. I don't want to make those decisions on my own anymore. I want to follow your ways. And I think it's very likely that many of us have issues in our lives that we are trying to hold back from God. God, I don't want you to take these things because those are my fun things. I love those things. Lord, don't take those things. But brothers and sisters, we have to put everything before the Lord with open hands and say, Father, I I like these things, but I'm offering them to you. Take whatever you want and help me to be satisfied and content and even joyful with whatever you place in my hands, Lord, for your glory. And so right now in this moment, are you willing to open your hands Literally open your hands before God and say, God, I just lay it all before you. Confessing your sins, putting your issues before him, and offering him your whole life fully and freely. Our Father, I pray that you'll help us to see where we are spiritually right now, that you'll help us not to try to avoid the Spirit's conviction, and that you'll help us to do what is right and good, that our hearts may be fully devoted to you. I pray this and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.